Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Learning Made Easier. This is episode 80, an interview with Megan O'Connor. In this guest episode, we're talking with Megan O'Connor, entrepreneur in residence at Kaplan Test Prep, to talk with us about the importance of experiential learning and how college students can actually get prepared for the modern workforce. So do you mind telling us and telling our listeners about yourself and what it is you do? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Um, Absolutely, yes. Well, so my job title is Entrepreneur in Residence, which is abbreviated often to EIR, and it kind of sounds like a made-up job title, but uh, what it means is uh, a couple of different things. It's a job title that became quite popular in the venture capital field of founders who, after they had had one company um, and exited it, it's a space for them to sit and think about what type of things they might want to be building next, what type of company they want to build next. Uh, venture capital firms typically bring EIR IRs internally so that way they can make the first investment. Um, but you're seeing a trend now of larger companies like Kaplan bring on EIRs and help them build out their new product lines. So that's actually what I'm doing, exactly that at Kaplan, um, helping to think through how might we build new products in the career readiness space for children of all ages. Mm -hmm. um, prior to joining Kaplan uh, about six months ago, I had my own software company. Um, I was the founder and CEO of a company called Clark that built uh, cloud-based business management software for the tutoring industry. And prior to that, I really always worked at the intersection of technology and education. I will say that ed tech is having a big uh, renaissance right now in the face of COVID, but mm -hmm. I always joke that I was in ed tech way before it was cool. <laughs> that sounds kind of like I was a coach way before it was cool. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. So what do you wish you'd known when you first started out, both in tech and then now at Kaplan? What do I wish I had known when I first started out? Well, I would say at Kaplan, I wish I knew the pandemic was coming because it certainly would have changed some of the priorities I had about some of the remote learning products that we were prioritizing. Um, but in terms of what I wish I knew when I was starting out, one thing that I did as an early founder is that we built things on a real shoestring budget and really um, tried to hit product market fit before we went out and raised a lot more capital. I would definitely do that again, but I would find a way to bring on some like all-star talent out the gate because I think in the beginning, I struggled to do everything myself. And turns out I'm not an expert in all things necessary. And you learn over time. That sounds familiar. <laughs> you learn. <laughs> I did the same thing. You learn over time that, you know, a good leader um, hires for the things they don't know how to do for their, um, their blind spots. Mm -hmm. And so I would definitely, um, the next go around, if I were ever to start another company, come out with the all-star cast of who I know round out a great leadership team. That sounds like, um, I think it was Henry Ford. He watched a quiz show and there was a guy, you know, like 21 and he was, he just knew all the answers. He said, I wouldn't hire that guy because he doesn't know how to ask questions. He only knows how to answer them. And he probably doesn't know how to think through a problem. He only knows the pat answer. And that is something that I think our students also need to understand is that if you're putting together, say, even as something as simple as a study group, you want people who are skilled in different areas. You know, you want somebody who's a fairly clear writer to send a report to the teacher about this is what we did in our group, but you also want people who are good speakers. And the, the writer may not have the speaking skill and the speaker 
<laughs> may be totally dreadful at writing things down. So, you know, that's a, a lesson we should all learn, you know, build your team with the people who know what they're doing. It's this idea of complementary skills, not just overlapping. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see from students uh, when they're trying to enter the workforce? You know, it's interesting. Well before COVID, we were tracking at Kaplan a trend in terms of students were graduating from college and finding that they didn't have the tangible skills to successfully secure a first job. And we were also doing a lot of different surveys with employers and just kind of overarchingly finding that employers of entry level positions by and large were saying, hey, you know, the students coming out of college aren't necessarily ready for the jobs that we're hiring for. There's a mismatch in skills. And um, then obviously with what's happened with the pandemic and the economy, people are more than ever thinking around, how do I get job ready? How do I leave high school and make sure I'm on the right path to enter the workforce? And how, if I do go down a higher education path, am I doing so so that way it unlocks the skills I need to enter the workforce? Um, there's kind of two buckets we're seeing right now that students are who are entering the workforce are um, lacking in. And the one that I can say that surprised me was just general professional skills, soft skills, things like how to be a great writer, how to work on teams, um, you know, even management, negotiation, some of the things that aren't as obvious as skills that you need to be successful. And we actually teach a product over at Kaplan called Boost that has this as one of the key components, because many times people who studied engineering in school don't know, you know what, you actually also have to be a really effective writer to be a great engineer within a company. So to answer your question, professional skills is one of them. The other area that we're seeing that a lot of students are lacking when they enter the workforce is just some of these new economy skills. Obviously, the jobs of today are brand new, and so they include technologies and that are not necessarily already have courses around them, but we are seeing kind of a gap in terms of the real-time knowledge that students need in order to enter some of these more tech-enabled jobs. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, so an example of that would be a lot of the things that we're seeing in robotics, engineering, if there's a gap between what some of the four-year universities are providing, I will say the boot camps do a much better job of providing the cutting edge skills in that space. But even you're seeing it in things like data science, uh, digital marketing, really across the board. So it's not just in STEM. Exactly. It's not just in STEM. It's in, it's in you know, no matter what your major, there's going to be something where you need a little extra. So that's misconceptions from students. What about employers trying to employ these students? What are the things that employers just expect students to know? And then the students don't know it. And the employers are like, I knew that when I came out of college. Why don't you know it now 30 years later? Well, it's funny. One of the things that we're finding is that things like email management, effective use of calendaring, how to use collaboration tools like Slack, things that we all take for granted, right? Because it's like getting up and brushing our teeth is using the different tools that I just mentioned. But how to, you know, effectively send a calendar invite or an agenda or some of these like professional ceremonies that become part of how somebody, you know, really operationalizes their time in the workforce aren't things that students are graduating college knowing, and so that's certainly a gap. I'm going to make an observation here as, you know, one sociologist to another, Dunor, this sounds like what we're not seeing is secondary socialization. Mm -hmm. because, yeah. And the thing is that secondary socialization is actually more specific to the specific job. So if you aren't working with people in that job while you're in college, you're not getting that. It's what we used to give with on-the-job training. So right. how do employers feel about giving some of that on-the-job training? Because I'll be quite honest, 
even in this era of COVID. I've never used Slack. I don't know how to use Slack. I don't have any reason to use Slack. And so I've just never used it. You know, I stick kind of to Facebook Messenger if I need to message somebody or my text message. So what do employers think about maybe giving maybe, you know, a four week training period in all of those professional things? How do they react if you suggest something like that? You know, I haven't suggested it, so I don't know the answer to it. What I can say is that employers are very excited. The programs like the one we're doing at Kaplan Boost are popping up to fill that gap. And the cool thing is that part, uh, different uh, companies and employers are looking to collaborate with a lot of these different educational tools out there, whether they're a guest star in a lecture or they're actually collaborating with the curriculum itself because they're finding that it's important for them to socialize students at a much younger age than they thought before um, and the norms of what it's like to work there. So I think that you're finding a lot more of that trickle down to the high school level even, not just college, but high school as well. So students really have time to socialize and what it means to enter the workforce. Um, in terms of on the job training, I think like all things, it is one of those things that is easier to do when the economy is in a good place. That doesn't mean it's not extraordinarily important. Um, and it certainly does increase retention and things like that long term. I just think we're in a little bit of a unique time in the world. So my advice to students is gather those professional skills on your own to the best that you possibly can. And really what you're both talking about is kind of the hidden curriculum. Right. There's the there's the hard skills and that's what students are very well aware of that they're getting from their classes. But there's that hidden curriculum. How do I talk to my new colleagues? How do I talk to my boss? What's the appropriate way to conduct myself in this setting? And How do I send an email that isn't, you know, exactly. Like I've got, you know, and I mean, just today, you know, during my office hours, I had about six students come in about the writer's workshop, which I tell them they have to write a paper and they've got to start from the ground up. Right. Most of them have never done that because they're, you know, they're either freshmen or they've managed to get through college to their junior year and they still have never had to start a paper from the ground up. And I tell them, you know, this is a preparation for the job. You know, if you can write a piece of research that is you know important for your employers for your future employers goals and you can bring them this paper that says you know i'm i want to hire on in this social work you know um, nonprofit. here's a paper i wrote on domestic violence you know but they don't think about that because what you were saying to about the hidden curriculum they're focused on i need to stuff the stuff in the book in my head and then spit it out on a test and that's what learning looks like and when they have to learn anything outside of what they're graded on mm-hmm they resist it because, you know, I mean, I had a student say in their writer's workshop response, I don't see why I should ever have to write unless I'm going to get a grade for it. They didn't want to practice writing. And I'm like, practice is part of what you're getting graded on. And they said, well, I never thought about it like that. And I said, well, you need to start thinking about it like that because that's what you're getting graded on is how much are you improving? Not just did you spit out words on a page? And they're like, well, why are you making me do it differently? I'm all because your boss will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think that what you're finding is that so many students have just been socialized throughout the years of like you got to get into college and you got to get a good test score and you got to get a good grade and you got to get a five on the AP exam and they forget what it all means and what the point of all of it is and so to your point just now Adam you're going to make them redo it because their future employer is going to make them do it there's a bit of a disconnect for some students who are so goal-oriented it's not their fault there's a lot to try to be successful in but there's a disconnect in terms of realizing that the reason they're writing these papers from scratch is so they can go on to do great writing in their career and beyond. But it's hard in this very, you know, test score, grade oriented social structure that has been put in place um, yeah. for most students. 
Yeah. And I know I tell my students that if you just give people a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers and you say, here's what I found, if you don't put words to that, no one's going to know what this means. Mm-hmm. So can you actually explain? And that's what we're trying to teach, you know, with writing. And that includes how to communicate when you've got to email your boss or when you've got to email coworkers on a project. How do you communicate what needs to get done and by when? Mm-hmm. One thing I make my students do is I make them, I give them a list of all the terms and concepts from the lectures that they've watched. And then they have to give me in their own words, their definition or explanation, right? So I had a student come to office hours yesterday and he shared a screen and he's all, what's wrong with this? It's a really good definition. It was full of jargon. It made no sense as written. And it was clear that what he had done was write down what I had said. And then he went on a Google search and then he tried to find something pretty. And I said, okay, let me just ask you one question. If you gave that definition to your grandmother and she had to take a quiz on it, would she pass the quiz? And his face just fell. I mean, like a stone. And he's like, no. And I said, Hmm. the goal is for you to write down a definition that makes sense to you and your grandma. And if it doesn't make sense to grandma, you need to go back and keep revising it until it does. And it's like a light bulb went off over his head and he was just, that's what writing definitions is about. I thought it was about memorizing the words that they used, Mm. you know, and this whole, it's, it's only the test that matters. So I actually structure my classes so the tests are minimal. They're not, they're not very important. Like they're just one thing you do. And if you blow it, there's seven other things you can do. You know, it's not like you have to, you know, if you don't pass, you don't do well on tests, you've got a writing assignment you can do instead, you know? Right. And I know that Nor has gotten to the point where he's now, you know, my tests are weighted so that they aren't that important yep. compared to the paper you have to write and the presentations you have to do. Yeah, generally, I weight my tests at maybe 10 to 15% per. So a student can have a bad test and still do really well in the class because I don't think it's fair to put everything onto one thing that's completely out of their control. Well, that would have worked great for me. I will say that I personally am not a great test taker, but I'm good at the papers and I'm good at the presentations. But I think that you guys have really hit on something that's, you know, wonderful in terms of the way that you're doing your teaching, which is it much more resembles the real world, right? When you're in a job, success looks like the culminations of all the different activities you do. Sure, there's probably some big presentations and maybe some important deliverables that are weighted more than others. But, um, you know, it, it's the consistency of your work that's important. And um, you have mo- lots of different mediums to show that in the workplace. So I think that's great that you guys are doing it the way that you are. I do a standards-based grading. Mm-hmm. And Denora's not there yet, but I keep pushing him. <laughs> but standards-based grading is that's how you're graded in the workplace. You're not graded with an A through F or a 10% breakdown. You're graded with excellent. You met the expectations. You need to improve or you're really not doing well and you need to step it up or you're going to be out of a job. And all of my, all of the written stuff in my classes is graded on that scale. And they know what goes into each part of that scale, right? And I've had students ask me, why don't you grade this A through F? I don't understand. I said, because when you get into the workforce and you have a review, this is how they're going to score you. So get used to it. Well, I I hope it does take off. I certainly think you're onto something. Uh, So a student wants to turn their college uh, experiences into a career. They have no idea where to begin. They've been getting advice from different professors, from advisors, maybe from friends. What do you tell them? Well, you know what I say is that career exposure is the most important thing that you can get. 
because what you're finding that your friends can provide to you, what your peers can provide to you are good insights. But what's actually the most important thing that you want to be doing is thinking through what is it like a day in the life in some of those different jobs that you'd be interested in. And when students tell us that they've run into, you know, barriers in their education around like exploring where are my passions, where are my skills best um, fitting, you know, where am I going to fit in into a workforce? It is around the idea of they don't actually know what skills are necessary for some of the jobs that sound interesting to them or jobs that they thought they really liked are comprised of a lot of things they had no idea that they would have to do. To come back to that example I gave at the top of the conversation, you know, we took a lot of different students who are interested in engineering and shared with them, you know, the amount of teamwork that you have to do, the amount of effective communication you have to do through different collaboration boards and writing out of epics. And that was a surprise to some students who at the high school level had tested as like high aptitude for engineering. So the career exposure piece, the understanding, you know, what it actually does look like in practice is what students wish they could get more of because it actually helps them understand much better what they're a good fit for. So is that kind of akin to a person thinking they're going to be a lawyer because they think that every day they're going to be in court arguing these high problems? Exactly. Not realizing there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of research that goes into this, and you're probably not going to be in a courtroom for a while? You're exactly correct. We actually have another joke similar around um, the medical field, right? You watch all the different TV shows that show this like fast-paced ER room, and most doctors will say, I never had a day that looks like that. Um, mm -hmm. So setting expectations about what the reality is, is what's important for students to get. You know, when you mentioned engineers and how they didn't know that they would have to do a lot of writing, I, I think it might have been in Inside Higher Ed or the Chronicle of Higher Ed, but there was one, you know, article that talked about them interviewing students who did this, you know, walk along with an engineer for the day because they were, they wanted to be engineers. And several of them, um, one of them was a, uh, a foreign student who was, I believe, from China, and he said, I'm so angry because they expect me to be able to write. All I want to do is the equations. That's what I'm good at. Why do they make me write? Because he didn't do well with writing in English either. And he was told basically, you want a job in engineering. You've got to be able to write out what your results mean. You've got to be able to explain what your equations are doing. You've got to be able to do all that. And he was extremely upset apparently. I mean, like to the, to the level of complaining to the school that their attempt at training him um, didn't let him know what he was going to have to do in the workforce. Meanwhile, his professors are going, I've never been in the engineering workforce. I teach on a campus. My job is not the same as an engineer at, say, Raytheon. You know, that's not, that's not what we do here. And what do you think about that disconnect between, you know, this is what the professors think they need to teach because this is what the discipline demands. This is what employers who use that major demand and what the students think they're getting. Where do you think that disconnect is coming from? Because it can't just be the, you know, the, the professors are in the ivory tower. I know that's the usual complaint, but I don't think that's all of it. No, I think you're right. I think it's actually the responsibility of the employers out there, those individuals who are doing the largest entry level hiring here domestically to open source to the public what it is they're looking for, what it is that they need. And that can be as simple as, you know, sharing that publicly with university partners, doing collaboration courses, workshops, seminars, etc. I think that there's other ways to do it too that I think are quite interesting. I know Honda started sponsoring different types of science and robotics fairs at the middle school level. They did that so that way they could start to show students at younger ages, this is what the baseline of skills are that you need. Like this is the foundation of some of the different things that you'll need to become a great practitioner in, in order to be successful if you were to work for us. 
kind of like an extended field trip then right where it's not just going and seeing the plant where you walk through it on one day i mean i remember when i was a little kid in the 70s we went on several field trips and i still remember the one to the newspaper i was so scared of the printing presses and they walked us like you know six feet away from the printing presses and it was so loud and i'm like i never ever ever want to write ever ever again and then i realized okay but that's not the only kind of writing you can do it in other places but i think if i had had a few days to follow you know different journalists around and see what editors do and all that I might be a journalist today instead of teaching college. So yeah, and we've had things, you know, like bring your parent um, to school day where they share about their different professions, right? To your point, these like one moment in time um, interactions, they're interesting because they can certainly spark interest in students, but they don't share the level of exposure a student needs in order to understand um, that field of practice. So I think that there is a lot that can be done in terms of corporate and university partnerships. Um, I think that the core, you know, courses that you're talking about taught by professors are extraordinarily important. I think that there's something that can be layered on top, a supplementary opportunity for students to learn the, you know, Amazon way or the Procter and Gamble, you know, insert the blank. And uh, students should be doing that at the college level. They should be getting that level of exposure from employers. So an employer comes to you and they want to hire qualified graduates, but their ads and their searches are just not helping them find those graduates. So what sort of advice do you give the employer? For employers, I recommend um, something not too dissimilar from what I just said, partnerships with universities, partnerships with vocational schools, and partnerships with boot camps. Because if they can start to really have a steady stream of applicants coming from different sources, they can start to really track, you know, where are the students with the best skills or the most appropriate skills coming from, and then double down on that partnership, figuring out how they can grow it and socialize those students, provide curriculum, provide oversight and education even further. I would also say that to your earlier point, if there is that much of a gap in terms of what they're seeing through their solicitations and recruitment and the people that are coming in, um, it's really on the employers to have a educational process that um, new candidates go through on the other side of being hired. Um, on the job training, basically. Yeah. And we have, you know, big banks, consultancies, et cetera, have done a great job of that since the beginning of time. I think that some of the areas where we haven't seen it are starting to think through what does employee education look like. The cool thing is they're not just thinking about it in terms of what it looks like at the entry level, they're thinking about it in terms of lifelong learning. So you're seeing quite a bit of companies think through how can I upscale somebody at our company throughout time? How do I take them from a, a coordinator to a manager to a director? What are the things that we are responsible in teaching them so they can get there? And then not only that, but you know, how can we partner with companies like Guild Education, which will help our candidates learn um, different certificates or degrees um, in appropriate fields externally to us so that way they can keep growing in their career. Okay, so it's a much longer term view then that they're taking. Mm -hmm. I think that the best employers are thinking about their employees as lifelong learners and they see themselves as personally responsible for guiding them along that path. The key word I think was the word investment and treating the workers as being, treating the people rather who work for you as more than disposable. They're not just cogs in a machine, they're people with skills that you're trying to develop because the more you develop them, the more they can help you grow. And so it becomes kind of a feedback loop. And if it's successful, then it's investment building on investment, building on investment. Mm -hmm. And the ideal is that it keeps growing and growing and growing. 
And I think that that idea of taking that time to say, okay, here are the skills you need when you start, but also as you progress, I think that shows a really good, I think that shows a really good growth mindset um, on parts of the employers here. Yeah, and I think when you run the numbers, because at the end of the day, you know, employers are going to be incentivized to do this if the ROI is in the right direction here. Um, and I think that they're finding that retaining talent and educating along the way um, is more financially viable for the company long term as well. Um, things like having great retention of employees is proven to save the company money, increase culture, like across the board. Great, great things come from it. So, um, you know, employers should not just think of this as a good thing to do, but it's really, it's not only an investment in the individual, it's an investment in the company as a whole themselves. But uh, what sorts of problems do you see students having when they bring their education into the real world? And you said, here's what they're lacking. Um, what are they telling you? What students are telling us is that they are, you know, it, it's not that they feel that they're lacking, is it that they're feeling like they don't necessarily have all of the different um, training pieces necessary to have a super tactical job. So they understand the theory, they understand the big picture, they have, you know, a really good grasp on the topics at hand, but they just don't always have some of the most up-to-date tangible skills that are necessary to perform. Um, and I think that learning on the job, it's a totally viable thing to do. It's a great thing to do. There's many things for software systems, et cetera, that I've learned on the job, um, but that doesn't make it super easy to get started. Especially when the employer isn't telling you, this is what you need to do. Correct. And, you know, when you just have to suddenly discover through, uh, as you know, there's a Japanese proverb I read about in a children's book, we all learn by the honorable path of horrible mistakes. And maybe employers should be looking to make sure that doesn't happen to new employees so much because if nothing else, it does a number on your confidence. You know, you, you think I must really suck if I can't even figure out this simple thing. But if there's no, you know, if there's no instruction manual or class to tell you, this is the procedure, this is how we do this, you know, maybe mm -hmm. expecting that is not, is not really, you know, valid or viable. Um, I think you're right. What are the three biggest mistakes that you see students making? The three biggest mistakes that I see students making is um, studying too hard or staying too focused on test scores or grades versus taking a step back and realizing the why that they're learning those subjects um, so that way they can apply those learnings to the real world. The next piece I would say is students feeling as if they have to pick just one career path and then doubling down on that. What we find from the work that we're doing with our product boost is that a lot of different careers have core fundamental skills that are necessary for somebody to be successful in them. And so what's great about that is it means you could have a strong skill and it could apply to a couple different career paths. You don't have to decide at age 18 you want to be a doctor. It's more that students need to understand what is the backbone of the different career paths out there and how do they go about getting the skills they need that could apply to a couple different career paths. So thinking that you have to have the complete end state decided at the beginning of college, not true. Having the end in mind thinking about what end state you'd like to be in for a career is important because that's how you go about collecting the right set of skills. And then the last thing I would say I see as a mistake students are making is just not prioritizing things like jobs, internships, externships, even online courses that give you exposure to careers. And the reason is sometimes those things just don't fit in with your already very busy 
college experience. Um, so I always tell students the best thing you can do is make sure that you're learning in a real world environment on a job at the same time you're learning in the classroom. You might be interested in the book that Denora literally just got published yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So I'm a huge sports nut. Mm -hmm. I love teaching. And so I was trying to understand kind of the academic obstacles that student athletes face when they're in college. And it's a lot of time management. Uh, it's a lot of energy management as much as it is time because by the time they're done with practices, they're exhausted. They've got a couple sessions. Um, there's travel to and from games and that's not necessarily time that's great for studying. But a lot of them are really motivated. They're driven to succeed. They're pushed. They're used to wanting to be the best you know, in their sport. They want to be the best in the classroom, but they're coming up against the demands of school, the demands of the sport. Some of them will work part-time. Uh, some of them are caretakers. And so at some point, even if they want to do everything right, there's just not enough time. There's not enough energy to go along or to go through in the day. So part of that learning process has to be how do we, one, how do we as schools help them do better in their endeavors in the classroom, but also two, how can they better manage that energy and that and that time so that they're not trying to do everything at the last minute even given all of the demands of the sport that they're in and this makes me think about what you said about internships and externships because how can they do that if they are in any kind of extracurricular that kind of negates the ability and yet we want them to have the college experience right which is something that we're all you know kind of fighting mm -hmm. with right now is that how do they have the college experience when we're all doing it online or trying to online yeah yeah and i think a lot of what you just shared is that there's not a lot of flexibility right there's not a lot of room for uh creativity in the way you spend your time or the way that you're learning um in some of those very traditional college experience settings and you know if i were to say there were any positive of what's come out of the education's response to COVID, pandemic, quarantine, is that students are thinking outside of the box in terms of how they're learning. They're doing remote learning or they're doing a hybrid of in-person and remote, and they're not just going to one institution to learn everything. That trend has started and I think it's going to continue to pick up. They don't just look to one brand name college and say, you'll teach me everything I need to know in the next four years. They're looking to the internet. They're looking to different um, opportunities exterior to that. Um, and they're thinking about their time differently, which I think is really important to think about yourself as a curator of what you're interested in and then use a couple of different outlets to educate you um, would I think be the best way to get prepared for the real world at this stage of the game. What are the three biggest mistakes that you see employers making? Hmm. You know, it's an interesting question. Um, it's just, it's so diverse based on the stage of the company, whether they're small, medium, large, and you know, what vertical that they're in. I think if I were to make some kind of overarching generalizations, I think that companies are not sharing with the general public enough about what it's like to be successful within their different roles. Um, another thing that I think that companies have had a hard time um, with is just socializing students of diverse backgrounds of what it's like to work at their company. You know, too often than not, students who can have an internship at a big company get the insight of how to be successful there. Well, internships are few and far between and they typically come through your network. So if you're someone whose network isn't currently within a company that you aspire to work at, how are you supposed to get that exposure? You know, it's really a fault of the companies that they're not doing a good job to help students of all different backgrounds learn about how do you get in the door to be successful 
successful here. And then the last piece is I think actually what companies was a mistake of companies before, but isn't today. And it was thinking that people had needed to show up day one with everything they needed in order to work there for the rest uh, of their career. The plug and play employee. Exactly. What we see now truly is a shift in employees who have or employers who have learned from their mistakes and they are now considering their employees lifelong learners and they're teaching them along the way. Now, in your role as an EIR, what kind of things do you fight or advocate for for the students who work with you? As an EIR, what I advocate for is that we're able to create environments where students can learn, absorb the content, and then also have a really great feedback loop. I want to hear from students about did they get the expected outcome from the curriculum we put in front of them? Are they learning at the pace they expected to? And I think that the best way to do that is to bring students into a community and really invite them to be advisors of the product. Um, you know, I think sometimes companies feel like, oh, if we let people give us too much feedback or we show them behind the curtain of how the sausage is made, you know, they won't think we're as uh, a quality of a product experience. And I would say just the opposite. I think that if you bring your users, you bring your students into the experience of the creation, um, you'll actually find that they're much more invested. They get more out of it. And then you end up getting to deliver them better content because you're taking their rapid feedback in an agile environment, changing the next step. So that way it best fits the student. So when you speak to groups, which we assume that you do every now and then, what do you want to motivate them toward doing? Like, what are your calls to action for groups? My calls to action for groups are to take a pause at the end of high school, and that could be during your senior year or after you graduated, and take some time to do self-reflection. Because too often we just follow steps because we think we're supposed to. We do well in school because we think we're supposed to. We get good scores because we think we're supposed to. We try to get into a four-year university because we think we're supposed to. But guess what? The data shows that the majority of students are not prepared for the workforce. So that self-reflection is necessary for them to make the best use of their higher ed experience. Another fun fact is that something like 32% of uh, college graduates end up in a first job that they didn't have to have gone to college for. So I think that the other thing that I try to encourage big crowds of students around is make sure college is right for you. It would be okay for you to aspire to have a future, a career, mm -hmm. et cetera, that doesn't require a traditional four-year university or perhaps you know the financial investment or student debt that you'll go into as a result. There are many ways to get into very successful careers through vocational training, through boot camps, et cetera. Um, but if you take, don't take that pause, how would you know, right? You're just kind of on the wheel at a certain point and it keeps going. So more, more than not, I really hope that students stop, take a pause, and think about their end goals. Not that they have to know them for sure, but just because I think it will help them make better choices about how they spend their years post high school and pre-employment. So what would you tell anxious parents if you have a chance? Hmm. I would say to anxious parents um, that we're finding that brand name university degrees are not necessary for students to go on and be extraordinarily successful in the workforce. So to, I would say to anxious parents who are maybe driving for their kids to get into a top 50 university, um, let them know there's lots of people who've been successful who have gotten higher ed experiences outside of those institutions. Um, to anxious parents, I would also say push your students to work because that is the best way that they're gonna figure out what they wanna be and how they're gonna get there. And then I would also say to anxious parents, 
I hear you. The world is changing really quickly as it results to education and everything you were told as a parent that you were supposed to help your kids with up until this point suddenly feels really different. So like definitely feel for you. Take a deep breath. I think a lot is going to change in the next couple years. So walk us through a typical day as EIR at Captain at Kaplan. You know, mm -hmm. tell us tell us what it's like. Well, it depends if I'm launching a new product or not. I'll tell you a little bit about what my days are like now. Um, now I am in a product launch phase, which means I essentially am running a mini startup within Kaplan. The fun fact is it's about the size of the startup that I ran externally. Um, so I, uh, I have a good sense of what a team of this size needs to operate. Um, Instead of a board, I have a CEO and a COO and CFO that I need to update and report um, back how we're doing. But I actually treat those meetings very uh, similarly to how I did as a CEO reporting out to their board of directors. Um, we get to be pretty autonomous from the rest of the big Kaplan company because we're a test, right? We are testing in a small group um, in an agile development way how we get product market fit, what best is necessary for our student users um, to have the right outcomes. And so we're in basically a constant state of experimentation. So a lot of my day is looking at metrics. So we could see, did the experiment that we put out into the world prove positive, negative? The cool thing is, is getting a no is just as valuable as getting a yes, because it means, okay, great, don't do that again. Go a different direction. <laughs> don't spend money on that again. Um, and so mostly my days, uh, I wake up, we do stand-ups across the team to start the day, set the goals for the day, talk about how we're gonna check in on the day's progress. And then by day's end, we actually recalibrate. And it's like, okay, based on the findings today, do the plans we have for tomorrow still make sense or should they change? So it's basically like being a scientist all the time, which is kind of fun. And I like that you say, I love what you said about if you get a negative result, you don't treat it as bad. You just say, okay, we know not to do that again. It shows us that we can make mistakes and be very successful. And that's something that I think students don't understand for a while is that mistakes are part of life, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's on a test or whether it's in the workplace. Hey, I had an idea and it didn't work out. What do I do now? And Denor and I both teach sociology at different, you know, at different campuses, and we've both taught methods classes. And one of the biggest roadblocks we run into in methods is I'll tell the students, okay, I want you to test a hypothesis. And I want you to tell me what happened. And they're all, but if the hypothesis is wrong, then my grade's going to go down. No, no, it's not. We have to break them of the idea that the A is the only acceptable grade. Like I have a, a little list of this is what grades mean in college. And I've had students say, you're not judging me if I get a C? No, I know that if you've got a C, it's probably because you're not in my major and you've got a dozen other classes and other things you've got to deal with. A C is a perfectly acceptable grade, folks. And they go, what? But, but if I don't have a perfect 4.0, then nobody will hire me. No. You know, and that's another big misconception that we see a lot. But they can also learn that you can earn an A while making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I think that both of those things are extraordinarily important. And I will say as an employer, I don't know the GPA of anyone that works for me. When I tell students, nobody cares about your GPA except maybe grad school or med school or law school. But other than that, nobody's going to care what your GPA is. All they're going to care is that you have a degree. They don't stamp 2.5 degree on your degree. It's just you have a bachelor's degree. This is the way it is. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we forgot to ask you, Megan? No, I think this is a really great analysis. I would say, you know, the only other thing I'll tell you is that I'm trying to solve some of these problems with the product that we um, have out in a V1 state called Boost by Kaplan. 
uh, and you can find it at boostbykaplan.com. And uh, our students are finding that they're learning a lot about the working world that they didn't know about beforehand. So I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to solve some of these problems um, in short order here. And that, brought, that brings us right into our last question, which is where can our listeners find you? Basically, we want you to you know, pimp your services. Now, you've already told us about Boost. What else? Yeah, so you can find me uh, on Twitter. That's probably where I'm most active at, at Megan M. O'Connor. And um, yeah, definitely check and follow along about what I'm reading, writing, and talking about there. And we'll put that contact information in the show notes. Cool. So that's what we have for you in episode 80. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. Also, we would really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to join us next week for episode 81, when we'll talk about divisiveness in the classroom and how to handle it when students call each other out. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.